This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Transmission intercepted. We interrupt. We interrupt your regularly scheduled programming. This is Mike Waddell, Vice President of the Muscatine County Genealogical Society, and you're listening to Sean Radcliffe and Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. Good day, everyone. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks, the internationally syndicated original talk program on MicroStream Radio, where we feature interviews with professionals from museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies across the United States. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com. But we're also on almost every podcast platform, as well as Facebook, YouTube, and Odyssey. So, wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. We give people a better understanding of these organizations. We let people know how they're supported, how each is unique to the communities they serve, what programs and events they currently have underway, and what services they offer to the public and their members. We believe this information is vital for people to know how to work with these organizations and how important it is to join, support, volunteer with, and donate to one or more of these core societies. Remember that your donations are tax-deductible. Each guest organization on Preservation Oaks brings with them a truly unique perspective around how they tell the story of their communities, how they continue to be relevant for the times in which we live, and what kinds of exhibits and volunteer opportunities they've created. This makes listening to each episode of the program interesting, fun, and diverse. Now, if you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. Hey, I'm excited to tell you about a new segment on Preservation Oaks. It's called Book Shorts, and that's B-O-O-K-S-H-O-R-T-Z, and it starts with this episode. We love genealogy. We love history. So we're always looking for newly released helpful books. And specifically what we're looking for with regard to genealogy, we're looking for books that facilitate making progress on family history research by educating us about winning strategies, habits, or methods of genealogical research. 
With regard to history, we're looking for nonfiction books that provide insights into ancestors' lives and the places they lived. I especially like history books that allow the reader to step back in time. These books add depth to understanding and telling the family story. When we discover authors and their books that we think can help our listeners, we'll feature the book on book shorts. That way, we can build listener awareness of the book, how it might help them, and where they can get a copy. Every little bit of sharing helps, right? And now that you understand what Book Shorts is, I hope you enjoy each Book Shorts segment. If you'd like to suggest a great book or to let us know what you think about Book Shorts, send an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. Love hearing from you guys. All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. Our curated historical events for July. Number one, something I bet you didn't know. On July 9, 1968, U.S. Patent 3,392,261 was approved for a portable beam generator, also known as a handheld laser ray gun. It was granted to inventor Anthony Dernbach. Go and look it up. It's pretty cool. On July 31, 1790, the U.S. Patent Office first opened its doors. The first U.S. patent was issued to Samuel Hopkins of Vermont for a new method of making perlash and potash. The patent was signed by George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, which is pretty cool. Hey, happy birthday on July 1st, 1818 to Ignaz Semmelweis, a Hungarian physician who was made famous for realizing that many diseases were contagious and could be drastically reduced by enforcing appropriate hand-washing behavior by medical caregivers. So you want to know where all this hand-washing stuff came from? It's Ignaz Semmelweis, who was born on July 1st, 1818. On July 4th, 1882, the last great buffalo hunt began on Indian reservation lands near Hedinger, North Dakota, as 2,000 Teton Sioux Indians in full hunting regalia killed about 5,000 buffalo. At this time, most of the estimated 60 to 75 million buffalo in America had been killed by hunters. By 1883, the last of the free-ranging buffalo were gone. By the way, according to the American Buffalo Legends of America website, there are currently about 200,000 buffalo roaming the plains today, thankfully. Happy birthday on July 2nd, 1888 to Selman Wakesman, who was an American biochemist and microbiologist who researched organic substances and their decomposition. That led to his discovery of streptomycin and other antibiotics for which he received the Nobel Prize in 1951. Happy birthday on July 4, 1753 to Jean-Pierre Francois Blanchard, who was a French balloonist who made the first aerial crossing of the English Channel and made the first balloon flight in North America. Now remember, this was 1753. It wasn't until 1978 when the first balloon crossing of the Atlantic Ocean was made during the historic flight of the Double Eagle II. That flight of the Double Eagle II was the 14th known attempt to cross the Atlantic by balloon. Happy birthday on July 11, 1838 to John Wanamaker. He invented one of the first, if not the first, true department store, the first white sale, the first modern price tags, and the first in-store restaurant. He also pioneered the use of money-back guarantees and newspaper ads to advertise his retail goods. Now this one I find very interesting. 
It was July 10th, 1991, when Boris Yeltsin took the oath of office. And this is the interesting bit. He became the first popularly elected president in Russia's thousand-year history. That was 1991. On July 13, 1787, the United States Congress enacted the Northwest Ordinance, establishing formal procedures for transforming territories into states. Those procedures provided for the eventual establishment of three to five states in the area north of the Ohio River to be considered equal with the original 13. The ordinance included a Bill of Rights that guaranteed freedom of religion, the right to trial by jury, public education, and a ban on slavery in the Northwest. On July 21, 1898, Guam was transferred to the United States government by Spain. On July 25, 1898, during the Spanish-American War, the United States invaded Puerto Rico, which was then a Spanish colony. In 1917, Puerto Ricans became American citizens, and Puerto Rico became an unincorporated territory of the United States. Partial self-government was granted in 1947, allowing citizens to elect their own governor. In 1951, Puerto Ricans wrote their own constitution and elected a non-voting commissioner to represent them in Washington. Couple of jokes. How a genealogist introduces the children. I'd like you to meet my descendants. How a genealogist introduces their parents. Have you met my ancestors? Let's take a drink of tea. Twinies tea. I love Twinies tea. So good. Now you can email us anytime at preservationoaks at gmail.com. Preservation Oaks is available for listeners on nearly all podcast platforms, as well as Facebook, Odyssey, and YouTube. For this episode, we greet Brian Stuckey from the Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum located in Gossel, Kansas. I've really been looking forward to this episode because of the intriguing historical and cultural aspects of the museum and the area. If you're a resident in the local area, this episode will help you understand what the museum has to offer, how you can participate and take advantage of the worthwhile events the museum sponsors, and how to best support them by volunteering and donating. Here's a brief biography of our guest. Brian Stuckey is a retired teacher living in Gossel, Kansas. He taught K-12 art and photography for 38 years and also coached volleyball, basketball, and track. He was student council advisor and announcer for the Gosso Bluebirds football and basketball games as well. In his retirement, he researches local and Mennonite history, especially Pioneer and Indian trails, and has mapped previously unmapped trails. He was invited to speak at the National Convention of the Oregon, California Trails Association. He is also a bit of a writer, publishing articles in several magazines. His best-known writing is the book Hallowed Hardwood, The Vintage Basketball Gyms of Kansas. These days, he's also a tour guide extraordinaire for the Alexander Wall Mennonite Church and the Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum. Hey, good day and welcome to the program, Brian. Good to be with you. Hey, I'd like to dive right in here because your museum and your mission are so interesting and unique, and I think the listeners are going to be totally absorbed. Well, I hope so. <laughs> listeners, Gossel is in Marion County, Kansas, and you spell Gossel, G-O-E-S-S-E-L, for those of you that want to look it up. Brian, what's the history of Gossel, and how did Gossel get its name? 
Well, that's uh, that's quite a question. You know, when the Mennonites came from Russia in 1874 and settled in this area, they settled in about eight little row rows of homes that we called villages, and one of them was called Gnadenfeld, and eventually that developed into a trading center with a, a blacksmith shop and a creamery and a, a, a small church, and uh, then it, it, it uh, really took off in 1895. You had a doctor here who wanted to have a medical clinic. His name is Dr. Peter Rickert. He wanted to have it attached to his house, but he thought, well, I need to have a post office so I can ship in medicines and whatever we need to have shipped in for the medical office. Eventually, he was going to develop uh, the hospital. So he looked into what name should we apply? And he sent in the name West Branch because that was the name of the township around this area. And the oral history is that it was rejected because the U.S. Postal Department didn't want any more names as Northeast, South, or West. That may not be entirely true. But what is true is that he was reading a newspaper at the time. We think it might have been a German newspaper covering worldwide news and read of a shipwreck in the English Channel, the Elbe, E-L-B-E, it's the name of a river in Germany. And it was a shipwreck and it went down in like 20 minutes. It was a ship that made regular runs from Germany to New York with mail and passengers. And the captain on it did everything he possibly could do to rescue people. And only one lifeboat made it to the coast of Holland. Uh, 250 people drowned that night. Oh. But he, he, did, he did some heroic things. And the name of the captain was Kurt von Gessel. The Germans would pronounce it as Gessel. But he saw the name. He said, oh, my goodness, this man is a hero. Let's send that in. G-O-E-S-S-E-L. And that was accepted in 1895. And we've been known as Gossel, Kansas, ever since. Oh, be darned. And there was a kind of a, an oral legend about that and had some details wrong. And we didn't really know much about that until 1982. I was teaching here. Uh, a guy starting a little restaurant, a little hamburger restaurant. He wanted a picture of a sea captain. Well, I'm the art teacher in town, so he wanted me to paint a portrait of the sea captain. I said, well, what if there really is a person like this? Well, you go ahead and paint whatever you want. Well, I did some research. I found him. I found it in the New York Times of 1895. I found a, oh, a pen drawing of this Captain Kurt von Gessel, Captain Gossel, and made a painting of him. And now people know the true story of how Gossel got his name. Now, is that painting hanging in the city hall now? That painting is actually in the grade school because that restaurant closed. We've had some other connections with people in the United States, like in Milwaukee, and people in Germany who are from that family. One of them provided us with a large, like a two foot by three foot black and white photograph of this captain. There was his, his official portrait, oh, and we cool. have that framed in the high school library. Oh, that's fabulous. That's really nice. Nice for all the kids to learn, you know, where their town name came from. Gossel was created that way. It got its name that way from a doctor who wanted to start a clinic. People of Gossel came in 1874, and what I was reading on the Internet was that they were low German Mennonite families who came from the steppes of southern Russia. And I don't understand any of that from the perspective of the culture of Germany. Can you tell yeah. me what low German Mennonite families really are and what are the steppes of Russia? Well, let's first give you some definitions and then kind of tell you a little background to that. Thank you. Low German are people who lived in the northern or the lowlands of Europe. Uh, the Netherlands, uh, Poland, so forth. And that low German language is really like a spoken language, wasn't really a written language. 
as opposed to what we call high German or regular German. And you don't have to be Mennonite to speak low German, but uh, that is one of the uh, ethnicities that is carried through the history. The steppes of Russia are the prairies of um, basically what's Ukraine now. And the steppes in, in, in uh, Russia are very similar to the climate and everything of, of the Great Plains of Kansas. And so when they came here, they go, oh, yeah, this is just like where we came from. I'd like to go back a little bit to who are Mennonites and what, uh, what do they believe, what, where they come from. And I would go back to 1525, they began as Anabaptists in Switzerland. And there, they had differences with what was called the state church at the time. There was an issue over baptism. They, the, uh, the Mennonites, Anabaptists then, wanted to rebaptize as adults. And the government didn't want that. That was something they did not want. So as a result, these people paid the price in torture and imprisonment and even execution. So it was really rough on them. And so they spread throughout Europe, especially up to uh, Northern Europe, to, to Holland, Netherlands. There was a, a former priest who joined in with them. His name was Menno Simons. And he became a leader, and they uh, they got the name Mennonites from him. Oh, his name was Menno? Menno Simons, oh, M-E-N-N-O. Anyway, so the, the, the movement spread. What their, I guess I'd say their beliefs really kind of center maybe a couple of things to make us brief. Uh, Jesus is the center of our faith. Community is the center of our life. Reconciliation is the center of our work. And to just expand on it just a bit, what they did, even from the early days, is they gave more weight to the words and teachings of Jesus and tried to be good disciples. And part of that, then, the, the, um, the result of this, and this goes very much to what they did and where they went, where they traveled to. We say, following the words of Jesus, they became peacemakers who renounced violence, seek alternatives to military service, love our enemies, heal relationships, seek justice, do acts of service, and share possessions with those in need. Seeking to not serve uh, in the military, that got them in trouble basically wherever they went. <laughs> and so they go from country to country, and they, uh, the host country was wanted them to be soldiers. Well, that didn't suit, so they might move on to another place. So they've had kind of an uh, interesting journey along the way. The, the people who were eventually the gospel people were organized in a church in what is today northern Poland. At that time, it was called West Prussia as part of the German nationality. So some people call it Germany at that time. But there's a village called Chuchowka. And there they took in people from Netherlands, people who are ethnic Germans, people who are ethnic Polish, and other different uh, sources and formed a church, formed a community. I have to tell you how Alexandrian Church got its name. Okay, and that would be when these Mennonites were moving from Prussia to Russia, as it, that was in the uh, fall and spring of 1820 to 21. They were camped out south of Warsaw, Poland, and they got word that somebody was coming along the way in uh, an impressive carriage, and you better clean up and get ready for them. And they waited. Not long later, here comes this golden carriage. And out steps, of all people, the Tsar Alexander I of Russia. And he was a handsome fellow and tall, and he, he greeted them and said, who are you? Where are you going? What are you doing? 
And he said, well, we're Mennonites. We're coming from Prussia. We're going to your country down in southern Russia. And he said, oh, I've been down there. I've met your Mennonite uh, friends down there. And, and he said, say hello to them <laughs> when you get down there for me. And he wished them well on their journey. And since he could speak German, uh, and so did these uh, peasants, so to speak, they took the word that he spoke well with his name, and his name's Alexander, and the German word for well is Vol. They combined them to Alexander Vol. And when they got to Russia, that's what they named their village and their church, and that name has carried over to America. That name is just over 200 years old. I'll be darned. That is an amazing history. Thank you for sharing that. In 1820 to 21, they decided to migrate and travel down to southern Russia, to southern Ukraine, in a colony called the Molochna colony. And the reason for that was that Catherine the Great was the Tsarina of Russia then. She had cleared out Ukraine, sent the Turks out through military means, and had this empty land, and she invited in what she knew the low German Mennonites were good, hardworking, uh, responsible citizens, and she invited them in, gave them special privileges, mm. like gave them land, uh, said you don't have to teach Russian, you can teach German in your schools, and the biggest prize of all, you don't have to be in the military service. So with these privileges, that was very attractive for them to move there, and they did. And they lived there happily until 1871, a new czar comes on the scene, Alexander II. He was a bit afraid of uh, competing with Germany, and they're building up their military. So he said, well, we have to build up our military, too. So he embarked on a plan of Russianization. Everybody's got to talk Russian, speak Russian in the schools, and all your young men have to be in the military. Well, that was a big red flag for these people who oh, said, yeah. we have to leave. And so they organized a migration to leave, and not all of them left. Probably two-thirds of them stayed because they were tied into businesses and mills and factories. Those who stayed had a real problem in World War I, in the Russian Revolution. They were uh, had a horrible time with that. But the Mennonites who came in 1874, that's where that comes to uh, we come to America, I come to Kansas at that point. How would a person, a Mennonite, in Ukraine, I guess you said it was Ukrainia, right? Well, it would be the Ukraine region then. It was national, nationalistically, it was Russia. Okay. So how would a Russian even learn about Kansas and know that it was like where they came from? Well, here's another opportunistic situation. Just at the time they were looking for a place to go, here in Kansas, you had just had the Indian removal, Indians being sent to Oklahoma. The surveyors had surveyed the land, all the square miles in the townships. And you had um, railroad companies like the Santa Fe Railroad here, Burlington in Nebraska. They were itching to get um, families to come to settlers to come in this area and uh, and uh, live and be productive and use the railroad and uh, profit from that business. So they sent railroad agents all over the world, mostly to Europe and even into Russia, enticing these settlers, hey, come to Kansas, come to uh, Nebraska, come to even uh, South Dakota or Minnesota. 
And uh, that's what brought 20,000 Mennonites to the Prairie States in 1874. Wow. That's a lot of people. That's a lot. And so that, that was really the connection, the attraction. Wow. And by 1874, they would have actually had photography would have been, you know, maturing and they would have been able to show those folks pictures. Potentially. Uh, they, they had posters. We have posters in some archives of, you know, land, uh, come, uh, come to prairies and see how easy it would be to, to settle and to be productive and start farms and so forth. So yeah, there's, uh, there's some promotion going on there. That's amazing. So now we know, you know, what prompted the migration of these folks. Yes. And, and I was reading something about a Bethesda hospital. What can you tell us about that? Well, that is tied into the origins of, of the town of Gossel. We said how there were a few small businesses and the um, Dr. Rickard uh, started a um, medical clinic. And just a few years later, he wanted to start a full-blown uh, hospital, hospital and nursing home. And 1899 got that started. There's like two separate buildings were tied together. There were wooden buildings at the time. This was, now get this, the first Mennonite-related, Mennonite-related hospital and nursing home in the Western Hemisphere, in North mm -hmm. or South America. And you think, oh my goodness, surely there were Mennonites uh, of a different species in Pennsylvania. They've been here for a couple of hundred years. Wouldn't they have started a hospital by now? No, they hadn't. And so the Bethesda home, which continues as a nursing home today, the hospital part closed in 1984. It is the longest serving um, Mennonite-related similar institution in the Western Hemisphere. Wow. That is pretty cool. I should say this, that that uh, after the Bethesda Hospital was established, then the Gossel Main Street, it was like a, 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 a boost of uh, a building spurt. Uh, for about 20 years, a small business popped up along Main Street, uh, little wooden storefront buildings. And that, that really gave the, uh, the boost to, to the town of Gossel at that point. Fantastic. Now, the Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum, I believe, is religious-based because it's Mennonite. Does the museum have religious services? Well, I guess the best way of describing a museum is it's affiliated. It's, it's uh, not, like, owned by the uh, churches or anything like that, but we do have um, members representing the churches who are on the board. No, it doesn't have religious services. Um, but, uh, yeah, I would say we're certainly affiliated with the Mennonite church and, uh, we're open to any religious denomination, anyone who comes in the doors, as far as that goes. Okay. And, and is it affiliated with other religious organizations within the county? Um, not really just sim simply, uh, affiliated with the, the local community, uh, churches. Okay. And is it affiliated with any other Mennonite? historical agencies across the world? Uh, there are a number, I wouldn't say really like in partnership or anything, but there's communication with um, different Mennonite museums and historical societies in Canada and California and uh, Netherlands sometimes. We, we, there's communication, but I wouldn't say a, really affiliation. Oh, that's very cool. Very cool. Can you provide the audience with an overview of the communities you serve and the mission and objectives of your museum? 
Well, I would say um, as far as the uh, community we serve is is a local music, uh, local community, and the area, the region, which could expand south to Newton, uh, northeast to Hillsboro, to Mound Ridge. The mission and objectives of the museum they have uh, developed a threefold mission. Number one, to preserve and share the story of Mennonites who migrated from villages in the Molochna colony in South Russia, currently Ukraine, to this area of Kansas in 1874. Two, to remember how Turkey Red hard winter wheat introduced change to the agricultural development of Kansas. And three, to highlight the history of gospel community institutions and area businesses. Now this shall be accomplished through acquisitions, research, education programs, and publication. Very interesting. Now, what is turkey red, hard red winter wheat? Oh boy, that's the whole story itself. That was one uh, strain of wheat that the Mennonites brought, they harvested, they planted and harvested in Russia. And where, where the name turkey comes from, I'm not really sure. But they did bring, when they brought their trunks of clothes and a little bit of food and utensils, they would have sacks of seeds and maybe a a gallon or so of of wheat in a bag, so they planted it here. Now, to begin with, they didn't get very much of a start because you can't plant very much with a gallon of wheat. But they did get it started in 1874. But what really took off was about 1885 or so, the uh, the, uh, entrepreneur and miller, Bernard Warkentin, who's well-known, he had a mill at Halstead, and he decided to import 15,000 bushels of turkey red seed wheat, and he made that available for sale. And once that was made available, then there was just an explosion of planting wheat and harvesting wheat in Kansas. And from the turkey red original strain, wheat scientists have developed many, many, many different strains that Kansas farmers are farming today. And so Kansas became known as the breadbasket of the world because of the tremendous uh, wheat uh, industry that came through the Mennonites. I can't even imagine if I'm, if I'm sitting here and I'm in Salt Lake City, I'm sitting here, I speak English, and all of a sudden I have a disagreement with the government, let's say, and I move across the world. I don't speak the language. You know, I don't know the culture, and I'm just trying to create a settlement where I can survive. That must have been really hard. Uh, yeah, you you have that. That's that's part of the story of the epic journey. You know, when you're thinking of these people seeking religious freedom coming to America, and it was a hard start. It was a hard start on the prairie. Yeah, I imagine. And that's what your museum does is tell that story. How did the museum start? Well, that's quite a, <laughs> a thing. You know, I think a lot of things focused in on 1974 was the centennial year of the of the migration force. And, you know, I think a lot of people like, like me, I'm 68 now, but as a child, my grandma would have me on her knee and, and would say, this and that happened, and it'll be per- near 100 years. They came over on the ship, and that was in 1874. And that date was just burned into my mind. Well, I think a lot of other people had a similar experience. And so 1974, well, that's 100 years. We have to do something. And so all the different communities in the central Kansas area that are Mennonite-based, Hillsboro, Gossel, Mound Ridge, uh, Inman, Bueller, Halstead, I think Whitewater, they all said we need to have a celebration. Every one of them had a similar celebration, old-time food, old-time dress, 
threshing uh, with threshing machines and old time steam machinery and, uh, you know, what, telling stories about where we came from. So that was important that uh, they, they had a big celebration at that point. But I'll back up just a couple of years before in the actual museum itself. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for starting that. One is we had a, a prep school building, a Mennonite preparatory, like a high school building, uh, but it was private. That was built in 1906. And that was on the grounds where the high school is now. Well, about 1970, 72, the school board decided they didn't want that building anymore. They'd used it like as a wood shop or something, but they wanted to either tear it down or get rid of it. Well, some community members said, we have to step forward and save that building. So they moved that building. The second was there was a realization that family artifacts were leaving the community when antique collectors from out of state would swoop in to auctions and buy up artifacts never to be seen again. So there was a need to have a place to keep them. And those are the two real reasons why that uh, the museum got started along with the uh, 100th anniversary. Fantastic mission, fantastic museum. How did you get involved? How did you come to do what you do now? (laughs) Well, how did I get involved? My goodness. I would say that, uh, you know, I didn't grow up here. I grew up in the community to the west, Mount Ridge. And that's where a little bit this different ethnic group, the Swiss Mennonites, Swiss Volhenians, we came originally out of Switzerland, but wound up in Russia and came at the same time. That's my home community. I met my wife, Nancy, at Bethel College, just down the road, and we got married. And this is her hometown. So when a teaching job opened up here in 1979, we came here and I've been here ever since. Now, as far as interest in history, like I said, with my grandma's stories, I've always kept my ears open about history. And when I was in college was when 1974 Centennial happened. And I really got involved as a college student at that point. And so I'm, I've simply been trying to read and study all along. And as far as the museum goes, I became a member. And uh, today I'm a tour guide, a tour docent there. So uh, I, I sometimes get calls from the the director, Fern Bartle, over there and said, hey, there's somebody from Arizona. Can you come and, and uh, take them on a tour? Or she might give me a week or two for a group or something like that. But uh, uh, that's how I kind of got involved with the museum. That's fantastic. And you're an author, so you're used to speaking. You're used to writing. That's really cool. I love the mission of the museum. I love the culture and the heritage of the history of Gossel and the museum. What's coming up on the horizon for the museum? Where are you headed next? What's coming up on the horizon? Well, I think we're always uh, looking into how we can serve the community, doing a lot of genealogy, different exhibits that are changing. One thing I think is really exciting, and that is I've been talking to uh, the director and the board about the possibility of using QR codes. You put these checkerboard patterns on certain uh, items throughout the museum, and what a person who's a visitor would come with their cell phone, click on that, and get more content, either written content or video or sound. You know, we've come to realize uh, by studying why do people come to museums <laughs> and how, how, what are the experience based on? Some people are introverts. They just want to quietly walk through the museum all by themselves and read and watch and look, and they don't want anybody to bother them. Some people want a tour guide to, to tell them, oh, look at this, look at this, look at this. Some are a combination. 
But nowadays, when we have the technology, if we can do the QR codes, we want to be able to highlight, you know, so someone who's doing a self-tour of the museum, it could be like additional information. It could be like a tour guide in your pocket. Now, we're working on the content of that, starting to develop that yet. So this early on, early stages. But if I think if we can get this developed like we would like to have, then what I would say is for like millennials and younger, this will increase the cool factor tremendously. And we hope there'll be more visitors uh, who are um, younger uh, to come to the museum. Well, I think it's very cool. You know, I would walk through there all the time just to listen to how the stories are changing or what's happening, right? Very nice. Can you tell us a couple of funny or interesting stories from the annals of your museum's history? <laughs> well, um, I don't know if there's a whole lot of that would be it for the museum directly. I'll give you one story that would have to do with a, a, an artifact. It's called the horse fiddle. And what it is, it's a, a metal disc from a field implement disc that would uh, till the, the soil. And it would be rigged up with a, a lever that would rub a toothed um, cog over that disc and make a horrendous noise and racket. Now, what that would be used for, <laughs> in, in, uh, especially in the early days of culture, when you have a wedding, a couple of days after the wedding, on the honeymoon, they come home from the honeymoon, they would be visited by their friends to throw what's called a chivalry. Now, chivalry is kind of known throughout the country as that sort of event. A lot of racket beating on pots and pans and the people demanding to come in in the middle of the night and sit down and make us pancakes or something like that. Well, a horse fiddle is beyond loud. It's beyond imagination loud. And, and we had a horse fiddle at our house when, when uh, we were visited after our wedding. And it's, it's a sound unlike you've ever heard before. So that's one kind of an interesting and funny uh, artifact. Uh, I would say other things that are related to the community and culture, uh, nicknames. Nicknames are probably in, in probably most any community. But in the Mennonite communities, in the early days, you had names that were very few names, like Jacob, John, Paul, or whatever. And a lot of people had the same names. Well, then you have to distinguish between the uh, John C and the John J and the John F. Yeah. And in some ways to distinguish people, uh, particularly when there were young people, like in grade school or high school, they get tagged with a nickname. Uh, based on their physical appearance or the, the way their mannerisms or the way they said things or their height or weight or something like that. A lot of them were funny. Some of them were not. Some of them were derogatory. But uh, the nicknames is uh, something that's in the background of our, uh, of our culture. Cool. What was your nickname? Well, that was in a different community. It was Tree. I was called Tree because uh, I was tall. I was a tall basketball player. Oh, he's tired. Brian, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's time for our first break for a few minutes. All right, listeners, we'll be right back with the Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum located in Gosso, Kansas, after these important messages. Explore the history of the Mennonites at the Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum, located in Gossel, Kansas. 
The museum is located in your own hometown and nestled in the heart of Marion County. Bring your family, bring a friend, or just come on down to learn more about why they love Gossel, Kansas. Visit them and learn how to join the great events the museum sponsors at Gossel. That's G-O-E-S-S-E-L museum.com. That's gosselmuseum.com. You'll be glad you did. It's time for Preservation Oaks Book Shorts. Book Shorts is a segment of the program where we quickly introduce listeners to authors and books which satisfy your love of history and genealogy, help you with your own research, and finally help you improve the depth and wisdom of your unique family story. On this installment of Book Shorts, we're very honored to be joined by author Marion B. Wood. Marion Burke Wood is an experienced genealogy speaker, an active genealogy blogger, and the author of the best-selling genealogy book, Planning a Future for Your Family's Past. Her genealogy blog is climbingmyfamilytree.blogspot.com, and she tweets about genealogy from at Marion B. Wood. Marion's special areas of interest are helping people save, curate, and share family history and artifacts. Please join us in welcoming Ms. Marion B. Wood. Marion, welcome to the program. First of all, I'd like to say how awesome your book is. The book's title, Planning a Future for Your Family's Past, is a perfect name for it, and it's a perfect fit for me, and really, for any family historian who is continually trying to stay organized and thinking about how to make sure the work we've been doing isn't lost. I'm going to dive right in here. What motivated you to write the book? Well, thank you for having me. I started writing this book because I had experience with gathering so much research and finally captioning so many photos and realizing if I didn't make a plan for the future, someday I was going to join my ancestors and nobody would know what all this stuff is or what to do with it. And when I went to genealogy society meetings, other folks told me they were grappling with the same situation. So I decided to document my adventures in figuring out how to organize things, get them ready, winnow out things I didn't need to pass to the generations that were going to come, and then make my genealogical will. Fantastic. How can we convey how it can help a family historian? Well, whether you're experienced or you're just starting out in genealogy, you probably have gathered a few things about your family. So I created what I call the PASS process. P stands for prepare by organizing and analyzing. And if you are starting from scratch, this is a great book to help you figure out how to organize and arrange and store what you're going to be collecting. The second step in the past process is to allocate ownership. What I mean by that is not everything has to be in my hands. I realized in most recent years that I could curate my collection the way a museum curator works, because sometimes things could be in somebody else's hand and still be safe. That was the second step. The third step, which is extremely important, is to set up a written genealogical will so that my heirs know what to do with this collection when, in the far future, I join my ancestors. And so in the book, I talk about how to write down instructions so that people know what we want. Step four can be done at any time in the process. That's sharing family history now, because as you know, Sean, the more we can tell people now about our ancestors, the more interest we can get in our family history, 
and just as important, we're making sure that other people are aware that our ancestors had lives, and here's what they looked like, and who were they. And that's part of our goal for genealogy, right? You bet. I just love the way your book is organized. I picked it up, I was able to make progress immediately, and I was able to understand the past process because it's so well organized for the reader. One of the things I wanted to do was give people the idea that everything doesn't have to be done on day one, two, or three. Life by the inch is a cinch, and life by the yard is hard. So let's do it one little piece at a time. That's why I created a process, not a bunch of ideas. The process helps us feel in control and not overwhelmed. Well, you know, I read the second edition, and I really like that this is the second edition of the book, and I'd like to thank you for spending the time to add and revise the information contained in the book. This really kept it fresh. At the beginning of the book, you discussed the changes made in the second edition, which was great. Are you planning to keep updating the book with future editions as things change? That's a very big possibility. The reason I wrote the second edition is because I had feedback from readers and from people in genealogy groups when I would go to meetings, and they would say, your book is very helpful, but I don't have any clear heirs from my family history. What do I do in that case? So I took a look at the book and reorganized it and created an entire chapter about what you might want to try if you have no obvious heirs. That feedback was so extremely helpful that I'm going to keep listening to readers. If people have more ideas or questions, I might write a third edition to answer those questions. That would be great. I hope the book does evolve in that way. The past process, for me anyway, it was a call to action. And not all at once, not in a rush, but as you said, life by inches is cinch, life by the yard is hard. What advice can you give listeners on how to get started in staying motivated using PASS? My advice is to pick a favorite ancestor or a particular surname or family and just focus. So, for example, you might want to pick your father's family or just your father and his family. Take a look at what you know about him. See if you can then decide what's the best way for you to have access to all the materials you've collected, whether it's photos, research, original documents, certificates, and put them into an arrangement that allows you to put your hands on anything you want to know at any time. Now, during this process, you may actually find clues because every time you touch a piece of paper or look at a photo, something new might jump out at you that you didn't notice in the past. In that case, those would be bright, shiny objects that I suggest you make a note about. Don't stop your organizational method, but make a note reminding yourself to go back and follow up on that clue. Because the idea of leaving your family history to the future folks isn't just about doing that. It's also about finding out new insights, making new connections. And so research is not going to stop just because you're putting things into a file folder or into an archival box. On the contrary, you're going to find some new clues, as I did every time I touched a piece of paper. Yeah, good point. Very good point. So I got my copy of the book off Amazon. Is that the best place to get a copy of the book? If you want an ebook, you can only buy it from Amazon in the U.S., the U.K., and Canada. But if you want a paperback, it isn't only on Amazon. The paperback is also available from AmericanAncestors.org in their bookstore and online. 
And the Newberry Library Bookstore in Chicago has it in their bookstore and online. So I hope you'll go looking for it. Fantastic. I'd like to thank you, Marion, very much for your time and for your book. Thank you for having me, and I do appreciate it. And everyone, please start making plans now for the future of your family history. We don't want these important documents and photos to end up in a yard sale, or worse, in the recycle bin. That would be terrible. Listeners, you can pick up a copy of this excellent book, and I hope you do. It has real practical advice and prescriptive directions on how to tackle the necessary tasks to organize, curate, preserve, and share your family history. Thank you, Marion, for being a guest on Book Shorts. You come back anytime, okay? Thank you, Sean. All right, fantastic. It's a great book. See ya. Bye-bye. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with Brian Stuckey from the Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum located in Gosso, Kansas. Let's pick up where we left off. Brian, the museum is an eight-building museum complex. What kinds of facilities and exhibits are on display? Well, the buildings, it first began uh, as just a three-building complex. The central building that has the gift shop and where you pay your admission is called the Immigrant House Replica. That's a building that's 18 feet wide, 200 feet long, that is a replica of one of the two immigrant houses that were out in the middle of the section where the Alexanderville Church is located. Those buildings were built for these Mennonites by the Santa Fe Railroad to entice them to come here. And so they would have a place, once they got off the railroad and you walk 18 miles to get to the immigrant houses, you have a place to stay out of the weather until they could go out on the land and build their own houses on their own land. A lot of places in Kansas, people had to just dig dugouts in the, in the dirt and the mud. We had a carpentry crew from Halstead come up and put up one house after another, after another, after another. But the immigrant house is important because that's where they stayed. That was their first place of worship in America. And in the west end of that, there's an exhibit with mannequins and clothes hanging from the rafters and Russian trunks and utensils. That's, it looks exactly how they lived in that. So that's one. The uh, Turkey Red Wheat Palace, that would be a building to the west that is the agricultural building. And there we have some great items on display there. Schrader Barn, that's a typical farm barn, except it has in the north end of it a living quarters where people lived in the house. And with, of course, you'd have the smells of cows and horses with you. And so they want to eventually build their own house. But the family helped move that barn into uh, that location. The Krause House. Krause House is 1875 house. That was one of those first houses built by the carpentry crew from Halstead. Simple wooden house, brick oven, very simple. Then the next house would be the Friesen House in 1911. That was a bigger, more um, a larger two-story house. That's after people had been here a number of years. They've accumulated little money, and it was a little bit more elaborate of a house. It's not, it's not a mansion like the rich guy's house in town. It's not that, but it's a bigger house. 
that uh, would have been built. Then you have the Gossel State Bank building. We did, yes, have a bank here. We do now, again, <laughs> presently. But in those days, it was a, a little wooden storefront building that went out of business in 1935 in the Depression. And again, that was one that was used for storage until they said, hey, let's save this and bring it to the museum. The South Bloomfield one-room school, there was a typical one-room school, country school. Um, out in our area, we probably had 15 or more small country schools, and this was one of the best preserved ones. And again, the alumni from that school stepped forward and helped move it and restore it and, and uh, fix it. Then the 1906 preparatory school, that I said was one of the first three buildings that were moved here. And that was a, a private Mennonite-related secondary school. And that operated like that up until 1925. And then in 1925, it was transitioned to a public tax-supported high school, Gossel High School. That was Gossel High School's first school. So that's some reason to save that building. So people have not just one or two buildings to look at. They have a little village to, to walk around and, and uh, peek their head into and, and enjoy That's very cool. I love your story about the railroad attracting immigrants. And it looks like your museum complex goes from approximately 1874 to the early 1900s. Would that be accurate? That'd be pretty fair, yes. That's fantastic. And I can go through maybe eight different buildings in the complex and see all of that history. Do the exhibits rotate through those buildings? I would say partly yes, partly no. We do have some rotating exhibit space in the east end of the uh, immigrant house, but uh, more the west end, they have some permanent uh, display cases for families who they paid a certain fee and they brought in their pictures and artifacts to, to have there. So people might even come from out of state and say, hey, I want to see my great grandfather's display case and it's there. So we don't have a lot of rotating exhibit space, but we we uh, we do bring in different exhibits or develop different exhibits, some art exhibits, some furniture, um, all kind of craft exhibits. There's there's rotating exhibit space in that east end of the immigrant house. Fantastic. The county is Marion, right? That's correct. Yeah. And in the county, there must be like airports and libraries and things like that. Do you have any collections exhibited anywhere else besides the museum complex? Really? No, we don't. What kind of funding model supports the museum? What are your funding goals this year? Well, of course, there's there's memberships. Uh, we have a, uh, a good number of members. There's a banquet uh, once a year. There are uh, memorial funds. person passes away, they oftentimes leave uh, some money to uh, the museum. Uh, there's uh, food at the Threshing Days. We'll get into the Threshing Days celebration. Uh, there's a big meal, a German ethnic meal. Uh, there's benefit concerts during threshing days, and there's special programs, a number of, of uh, funding models. Very cool. So what are your goals this year for the museum? To maintain our, our heritage, but uh, we want to keep con- continue to communicate with people who do research, with visitors from around the country and around the world. We want to have a, a stability model where people know what they're coming back to, but yet we want to also have a little bit of change so uh, the community people can come and see things new every year. The people that visit the museum, are they mostly Mennonites? And do you get many Mennonite folks from Europe coming to see the museum? They're mostly Mennonites, but not always. We will have bus tours coming in from around Kansas for uh, like a senior citizens group uh, just doing a field trip. 
and uh, that we have people, Mennonite, non-Mennonite, it doesn't matter. They want to see what's over here. And they've heard about it, and they come away always being pleasantly surprised. They said, we had no idea you had this kind of museum here in this place. As far as across the nation, around the world, yes, we do get, we just had, <laughs> Fern just told me last week we had someone in from Australia. We do bring in uh, national, international visitors. Yeah, I thought you probably would. I'm not Mennonite, but I would go just for the annual events, the threshing days, you know, the various dinners and so on. I, I think that's great. So what kind of fundraising activities does your museum offer? Like the threshing days, that's the town celebration with parade and uh, food and displays of uh, machinery and everything. So that is probably one of the biggest uh, fundraising opportunities that there is. Oh, the whole town gets involved. Oh, sure. You got a parade and it's just, uh, that, that's one of the most fun parts of it is, is the parade. It's a walk-up parade. You don't have to register anything to show up and old, old cars, old tractors. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. I bet that's a lot of fun for everybody. Does the museum sell any kinds of coins or publication or apparel or any of that? Well, I would say through the gift shop is where that would happen. And we have a, a pretty good bookstore for Mennonite and historical books. There are there are different art, little small artifacts of the jars of tricky red wheat, T-shirts, crafts, or wheat weaving. Uh, there's a variety of kind of things. But Fern has said, I don't want to just go get a bunch of Kansas touristy stuff. I mean, she wants to make it something that's unique that only people could find here. So what kind of outreach and education does the museum undertake within the community? There are uh, field trips all the time from area schools. There are bus trips that come in. The spring is a great time to do that. And so we'll have numbers of students going through the museum at different ages, too. It's not just small children. Fern has developed a scavenger hunt where there's a list of items to see if you can find. You can find a butter churn, see if you can find a, a cloth or, a, or a, a tool or something like that. Nice. Um, you know, one thing I've wanted to do, and this would take some development with the ladies who, uh, who do caregiving with children during the uh, uh, threshing days, we'd like to sponsor sometime uh, a night at the museum where, <laughs> you know, you, you wait till dark falls. And then depending on the age of the children, maybe high school, we have to be older than that. But to have them stay overnight in the museum and tell stories about the early pioneers and the hardships or maybe coming to America or funny things. I think that would be a really fun thing to do. But, that sounds uh, very nice. Now, there's a lot of listeners that go to the grocery store and they get their groceries and, you know, make their meals. And they don't really understand what threshing is. What is threshing? Well, everybody ought to understand this, because if you ever have eaten a slice of bread, that's part of the process. You have wheat that's in the field, is cut by a combine. The threshing is the process that vigorously separates the wheat grains from the straw and the, the rest of the, the wheat plant. And that can be done by a, a number of different ways. If you go to the, and we have tools that all that display all of this process, threshing started way back in the ancient days, Bible days, where they simply take sticks and beat the wheat, uh, uh, hit it uh, violently with a flail, and it, then pick up the, the wheat and throw it up in the air and separate it in the wind. That'd be one way. Then in Russia, a, they developed something called a threshing stone, where it take a, like a limestone carved into, I would describe it as a cylinder about three feet long and maybe about a foot and a half in diameter that would have seven different cogs or teeth on it. It would be pulled by a horse in a circle with the, with the wheat on the ground and the the stone twisting the wheat out of the heads. 
When they came to America, they went immediately over to Florence to the stone quarry and had a hundred of these men, not just in the gospel community, but also Hillsborough and Inman and Bueller. They went to, and had about a hundred of these made and these threshing stones were delivered and they realized very quickly that, well, they could do that here, but they'd look over at the American neighbors and go, oh, they have a small stationary threshing machine that's a lot does a lot better job, a lot faster, a lot easier. And so the threshing stone became yard art, <laughs> and they're still around. What is so interesting is a lot of the people from these Mennonite communities helped start Bethel College. And so Bethel College's mascot is the thresher, the thresh, a person who does threshing, but the threshing stone. There are threshing stones on the Bethel College campus, and there's rituals when freshmen come in to the college, they touch the threshing stone, and when they're in the graduation ceremony, when they walk past toward the, toward the stage in the graduation, they touch the threshing stone leaving. So there's some permanence, there's some weight, there's some, uh, you know, some people ask the threshing stone, there's seven different cogs, is, it, is anything biblical? No, it really isn't. It's just, it turns better and twists better. But that's a threshing process. And now, of course, we have these modern combines that they do all, all in one process. I should say in between the threshing stone and the modern combine, they did have large threshing machines where you take a bundle of wheat and pitch it into the threshing machine and it would clobber up the wheat and the grains of wheat and the straw, and out one auger would come the grains of wheat. And that's what's demonstrated a lot. And that's kind of what gave the celebration its name. Yeah, that's very cool. Now, you've mentioned Threshing Days coming up as an annual event. When is Threshing Days? Well, it's always the first uh, weekend in August. It starts off with a parade in the morning, but it's like a, about a three-day event. Uh, the peak day is, is on Saturday. And I should tell about the, the whole event is uh, it's, a, it's a cooperative event between two entities. One is the Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum that has the grounds, where it's at. And the other is what we call the Engine Club, Wheat Heritage Engine and Threshing Company. And they are about 100 fellows that have a hobby of tinkering and working and, and fixing up these old steam engines and old uh, tractors and different kinds of farm machinery from earlier days that you would never, modern farmers would never use today. But they, the 100 uh, members, they set up out on a, in a field and they give their demonstrations there. So it's a cooperative event. There's just tons of food there um, of the, the old uh, low German kind of food with Vrenica and sausage and borscht is a, is a Russian uh, soup, of course. But uh, that's quite a celebration. And again, it's every uh, first weekend in August. All right. So it's still coming up. That's great. And it's three days. That You can do a lot in three days and see a lot well, yeah, of wonderful And things. the first day is more of a setup day on Friday. But certainly uh, Saturday is the peak day. If you're going to come, come on Saturday. Okay. Thank you. Listeners, you can find more details about the annual Country Threshing Days on the website by clicking on the Events tab. And that website is www.gospelmuseum.com. Thank you. Does the museum publish a newsletter? Uh, yes, it does. It comes out a couple times a year and it keeps um, the community informed on what's going on. Fantastic. So even if I'm in another state or I'm a Mennonite from another country, I could potentially keep up with what's going on at the museum. Well, I think you could. I, I think even that website is a pretty active website. There's a fern. Uh, Post things all the time on what's going on. There's also a presence on Facebook, too, of different events happening. Oh, yeah, that website is beautiful. 
and I really like your Facebook page. Is the newsletter for members only? I would say no. Well, <laughs> we get it in the mail, so I think we would. I think it's probably also distributed through the churches and possibly through the city. Yeah. Okay. You've been around since 1974. What kinds of records or historical artifacts has the museum received as donations from the public? Well, the records, there are files back in storage that have everything to do with like photographs. It's a great photo collection that they're always working on trying to catalog. Diaries, oh my goodness, diaries in German. And uh, sometimes people clean out a house and someone passes away and they attempted to throw away a, a diary in German handwriting. But no, no, there's, there's some critical details in those, all kinds of documents uh, from government documents. But as far as historical artifacts, yeah, a lot of things were donated at the beginning, but they continue to receive uh, anything from furniture to household artifacts and so forth. One of the real gems, I think, in the agriculture uh, buildings is a 1831 first edition McCormick Reaper. That's very, very, very rare. I don't know if there's five in the United States like that. I'm guessing. And it was acquired from an Amishman south of Hutchison, which is about an hour away from here. It was under a, a hedge. It was the first mechanized wheat cutting machine of any kind. And we have one of those. There's a milling machinery that was donated, actually went by my uh, dad's cousin, some wheat milling machinery. There's um, threshing machines that have been donated, large and small. And we talked about the seven-point uh, threshing stone, a symbol of Bethel College. We have a couple of those around here. Then I've got to tell you a, a great artifact is we have on display in a glass-encased room is a Wheat Liberty Bell. It's probably about eight feet high, I'm guessing. This was a project of a museum in the community for the 1976 American Bicentennial. Each state was asked by the Smithsonian if you could come up with something to put on display at the Smithsonian during the Bicentennial year. Well, one of the things that was on display in 1876 for the American 100th anniversary was a wheat bell. It didn't look quite like the Liberty Bell. So they asked someone in Kansas, could we do that? Well, the State Historical Society, I believe it was, and uh, the governor knew about Gossel asked, could you do something like this? Well, we just happened to have, right at that time, there was a, a I don't want to call it a fad going on, but certainly a process. A lot of people had the, the, uh, had the uh, hobby of doing wheat weaving. They would do different art, artifacts and artwork from uh, wheat. They would take long wheat stems, soak them in water to soften them and weave them together. And we had a couple of ladies here who did that and said, let's take on this project of making a real, uh, authentic Liberty Bell made out of wheat, wheat grains, wheat seeds also. They have their husbands who worked in the factory in Heston bend conduit pipe in just the right curve, wrap it with chicken wire to make the frame, the armature for it. And then the weaving was done just meticulously. And even the bell, the clapper, the, uh, <laughs> the clanger inside was all wheat and everything. So this is mounted up on uh, a semi-truck taken to a Smithsonian for a year and then brought back. Uh, there's some stories in some national um, newspapers that uh, uh, documented this. And so I, I tell people the, the wheat bell is our Mona Lisa. And what I mean by that is there are people who literally do this. They are going from Kansas City to Denver on I-7. Well, they stop at Salina, which is about an hour north of here. 
take a turn off and come down the interstate, come down to Gossel, say, I saw this in the brochure. I want to see this Wheat Liberty Bell. They walk in, see the Wheat Liberty Bell. Okay, I've seen it now. I can go. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You can see the rest of the museum too. Yeah. And it's the same kind of thing that, you know, I being an art teacher, I know this happens in Paris at the Louvre. People will come in and say, I just want to see the Mona Lisa and turn around and leave, not knowing you could spend three days in that museum. <laughs> so, but we do have uh, the Wheat Liberty Belt that's, that's uh, you know, it's some of our heritage, but also it's a tie to the, to the nation. And uh, it was, we're very proud. I'm glad you you mentioned it. You should be proud of it. I saw a picture of it on the website. I didn't realize it was eight feet tall, but boy, it's meticulous. It's beautiful. The museum must operate with a with a lot of volunteers from various communities in the county. So what kinds of volunteer opportunities does the museum have for members and the public? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because we've had other museum personnel come from other communities and say, I can't believe you did all this with just volunteer help. Uh, usually I have to hire some professional. Well, we do have, our director is, is hired probably two thirds time. So we don't really have a big staff or anything like that, but we do have a lot of volunteers, anything from what they call Saturday do- docents. When we're open on Saturday, it would be volunteers to be at the ticket booth, but also for cleaning buildings, uh, being tour guide, like I'm a tour guide, mowing, painting, uh, helping out with threshing days, making food, working in a lunch line, artwork, all kinds of different opportunities for volunteers. So you have something all the time for people to do if they want to contribute their time. Well, I would say so, yes. You mentioned threshing machines and having artifacts of that type. Are those all indoors, like in the Schroeder barn or in, you know, in the Wheat Palace? They're in the Wheat Palace. And actually, the Wheat Palace was expanded probably about 10 years ago to double the size of the uh, storage space. And we want to try to keep these in as, as good a condition as they can. We don't want to store things outside if we don't have to because they would get weathered. Yeah, the bar- Schrader barn, that's really not for machinery. That it shows cattle and horse stalls and things like that. But, but the wheat uh, palace is where we have the uh, machinery. Fantastic. I'm so glad it's indoors and it's protected. The museum is in Marion County, and that county has a lot of different Mennonite communities. How does the museum interface with state, county, regional organizations, other museums in the area? Well, I would say I'd start with uh, Marion County. There is a Marion County Historical uh, Society, and Fern would be our representative for our museum. There's probably seven or eight different kinds of museums in um, Marion County. They're certainly not all Mennonite at all. But that's the first level is is the Marion County Historical Society. Uh, They're also part of the Kansas Museums Association, and our director will go to uh, those annual meetings and um, learn different uh, techniques and learn what's uh, happening in the museum uh, world at that, at that point. And there are, there are actually uh, volunteers who come in to do some of the cataloging. Uh, some of the, we have one lady coming right now is putting things into a, a, a large database. Other people will do different sorts of volunteer projects. Uh, a number of years ago, we had someone do a project on all the, these country schools in the area and uh, developed this and submitted it for, for uh, a contest and won an award for, uh, for small, uh, small museums. I just love what you guys are doing. You mentioned that you have a, a pretty good bookstore. 
What kinds of interesting books has your museum published? Well, as far as the museum itself publishing, the main one would be, this would be back in 1974 and then revised in 1999, is called The Alexanderville Story. Now, The Alexanderville Story, Alexanderville is the, the mother Mennonite church here in this area, but uh, it is really all about the gospel community, including Bethesda Home and, and uh, other uh, entities in the gospel community. And you've updated that book one time? Uh, yes, 1999 for 125th anniversary. Oh, that's very cool. I want to tell you that I love your website. You could just see it in the website that so much work has gone into making and maintaining that website. And I think it's awesome. I could spend a whole afternoon just checking out your website. And I'm encouraging listeners, please take a look at the website. Brian, what kinds of things are available to do on your museum's website? Well, first of all, you'd explore the, the buildings. They would go into each of the different buildings. They might talk about different customs or cultures, maybe a little bit about food, maybe a little about machinery, a little bit about the events that are happening. And so uh, there's pages to click to uh, from the main page, obviously. Fern has done a, a very interesting uh, job putting that together. Yeah, I think it's really cool. It's like an old country store kind of look to me. I want to remind listeners and give listeners the contact information for the Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum. Of course, they're available on Facebook at Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum. You'll find their website on the internet at gosselmuseum.com. That's G-O-E-S-S-E-L museum.com. Their email is gossomuseum at gmail.com. You can call them at 620-367-8200. And their address is 200 Poplar Street, Gossel, Kansas, 67053. And the museum admission is $5 for adults and $2.50 for kids up to age 13. What's the easiest method for members of the public to donate to the museum? Well, we don't have like a page to, to have uh, donated like PayPal or something like that. But simply if you contact the museum, probably by phone or by email, and uh, they, will, they will hook you up. They'll tell you what to do and how to do it. Beyond using technology more with virtual events and working from home, how is your museum incorporating modern society into your plans, into your outreach and your exhibits? I wouldn't say that in exhibits we would uh, show that, but we would communicate with people in different ways. We're researching what relationship these Mennonites had with Native Americans who lived right on our land where we have, I think we believe the Kaw or Kansas Indians were there at one time. Um, immigration is kind of a very in in interesting intersection. We were immigrants at one time, and we went through all the difficulties of language and finding our way in a new world. But we have immigration issues here today in this world. And so we, uh, we want to be patient and understanding with, with those immigrants also who are immigrants today. I'd say changes in local economy are really startling. If you go back, we've, I found a map here not long ago, a 1949 map that was published in Mennonite Life showing the density of population in the gospel community. And I tell people, see, that was the day when dad worked on the farm, mom didn't work outside the house, mm -hmm. you had five kids, and you could actually make a living on 160 acres of land. So you might have four or five farms on a square mile. Well, now the economy is completely different. 
you know, dad works on the farm. Yeah, but you got to have at least a thousand acres to to make it pay plus livestock. Mom works in town, usually for the insurance. Nobody has more than two kids. And guess what the kids do? They go off to college, get educated and move away to where their jobs will take them. So they don't come back home onto the farm. So as a result, our numbers in our schools and our churches have diminished over the last 50 years considerably. And it's usually economic causes for this. So we've gone through a lot of different kind of uh, realities of, of change. And it's interesting for people to take a step back into history and see how things used to be. Very cool. Thank you for that. Hey, it's time for us to take our second break for a few minutes. Listeners, we'll be right back with Brian Stuckey from the Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum located in Gossel, Kansas, after this short break. Hey, everyone. This is Amuli Okudili. We'll be right back to Preservation Oaks with Sean Thomas Radcliffe after these important messages. Where can you experience more than 140 years of history in a single day? At the Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum, located in Gossel, Kansas. You'll find something for everyone at the museum. For hours, admissions, membership, and volunteer opportunities, visit Gossel. That's G-O-E-S-S-E-L museum.com. That's gosselmuseum.com. You really gotta see this website and enjoy this museum. Both are spectacular. Sometimes the most commonplace artifact triggers the most heartfelt memories. The museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies within our communities have responsibility for preserving these artifacts so they can be used to educate each new generation about their own past. They are the gatherers and caretakers of the stories of our history, culture and heritage. Sharing the lessons of history fosters an understanding of the fundamental knowledge of why things work the way they do. Once armed with a knowledge of their place in history, people have a much higher success rate as they build the future. Our values and ideals are rightly influenced by those who came before us. On each episode of Preservation Oaks, our guests share key information about these core organizations and history. You'll learn about the great work they do, what their needs are, their goals, and why you can feel really competent about the future by volunteering and supporting them. Join us wherever you get your podcasts, and then follow, comment, like, and listen. Um, let me catch up on Preservation Oaks emails. Here's one from Sandy in New York, she says. Is it out yet? Okay, here's another one, it's Bill in Arizona, saying, is it out yet? Oh man, and now it's Sarah in Minnesota, hi, is it out yet? Stop, I can't read all these, let me tell you all, the wait is over. A new episode of Preservation Oaks is released every two weeks, stuffed with information, history, genealogy, and everything you need to know to support your favorite cultural, genealogical, or historical society or museum throughout the United States. Listen to each new episode only at Preservation Oaks. Yes. Edwards, excellent job you did getting those tiny tea leaves for Tetley tea bags, but what's this ridiculous item on your expense account? Lotus blossoms for Miss Sita Damapella, three rupees. We don't send you out there for fun, you know. But Mr. Dimes, as a Tetley tea taster, you do insist on only the tiniest tea leaves. Right, Edwards, because tiny tea leaves give Tetley tea a richer, heartier flavor. Yes. I know they're hard to find, but that's no excuse to be fast and loose with the firm's money. But Mr. Dimes... No excuses, Edwards. But Mr. Dimes, Sita did talk her father into selling us 50 chests of tiny tea leaves. She did? Yes. Hmm. 
Wonderful girl, Cedar. I like those tiny little tea leaves. This is Melody Logger, president of the Heartland Museum, and I love listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. You're listening to Preservation Oaks with Sean Thomas Radcliffe, the program where there's always something new. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. We're here today with Brian Stuckey from the Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum located in Gosso, Kansas. Let's pick up where we left off. We've learned so much, Brian. Thank you so much for the information. I really appreciate it. Can you tell the audience about any current initiatives or needs of the museum that you want people of your area to know about and support? Well, there's um, the needs in the museum. There's always ongoing maintenance. That's, that's one uh, thing. I, I tell people that when people come here in person, they are often uh, more than pleasantly surprised. I think that's uh, a personal connection is is just means so much. I mean, you can you can communicate over the internet, but face to face is just a fantastic experience. All right. So the museum right now needs people to do maintenance. There's always needs. There are volunteers, and they take a break. So yes. Um, Ongoing maintenance is, is uh, something that's uh, helpful. What are your thoughts about how best to keep history and community support flourishing for the current generation? Well, I think, you know, one of the big keys is the, uh, the K through 12 uh, field trips. When you get children in and have them not just go through the museum, but live it. We have, used to have one uh, junior high social studies teacher that would bring our seventh grade Kansas history students in and go through a day in the uh, the country, the Bloomfield Country School, and have them dress in old time clothes. They would bring their lunch. They play schoolyard games. They would do their lessons in the way that the old time school used to do. Uh, and so uh, that living history is something that they'll remember forever if they if they live it themselves. So, why is the museum important to the community? What makes your museum different or unique from others? Well, that's actually kind of two different questions, but I'll start with the, why is it important? Uh, first, well, it certainly brings in tourists. And you talk about what, what in a small town in Kansas, there are, there are towns struggling with how do we bring people in? Well, this is one uh, magnet for, uh, for outsiders to come into the community. It's also a point of reference for information. It's a resource for family reunions and records and things. I say unique where we're mostly volunteers uh, that uh, a lot of museums may have staff, but uh, something that really has been, as far as a resource, just lately, um, since the Ukraine war has started, the firm says she has gotten a number of requests and information. They want to know about Ukraine. Mm -hmm. You know, where the Mennonite villages over there, are are they in like what's now the war zone? Yeah, Yeah, they really were. And so... There's a lot of education that goes on as a resource to people coming in for questions. Are there Mennonite villages there today? There are people who are, they may call themselves something a little bit different, like Baptists or something like that. They certainly had to change their name during the, the Cold War. But there are a few that are, that are over there. 
We do have a relief agency, a nationwide relief agency called MCC Mennonite Central Committee that is working hard to get in relief like food, blankets, um, you know, water um, to to inside Ukraine. It's it's tough to do in a war zone, and they deal with also the refugees that flee the country and are based in in the neighboring countries too. So uh, we do have connections over there today. Not nearly as many as there used to be, but there are some. Wow. That is very cool. We've learned a lot about your museum, about what you're doing, what your mission is, how exciting the events are that you have and what you have to offer. And quite frankly, you know, anybody listening to this uh, podcast would consider joining your museum. What are the membership levels? How do I join the museum? You start out with an individual membership is $20 a year. A couple would be 40. A family would be 50. That would include children and grandchildren age 18 and younger. And then there's life memberships at $500 a person. Now, the annual memberships, um, they would include unlimited free visits to the museum, a 10% 10 discount on museum store purchases, and one guest pass or two guest passes for a couple or a family membership. Now, the lifetime memberships, they would include the benefits would be unlimited free memberships to the museum, 15% discount on museum store purchases, five guest passes per year, and of course, no annual membership renewal. Fantastic. So I want to give listeners the contact information one more time. Of course, the museum is available on Facebook at Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum. They're on the internet at gosselmuseum.com. That's G-O-E-S-S-E-L museum.com. Their email is gosselmuseum at gmail.com. Phone number is 620-367-8200. Their address is 200 Poplar Street in Gossel, Kansas, 67053. And if you do go to the museum, the admission is $5 for adults and $250 for kids up to age 13. For folks that are outside the area, let's say I've, you know, I've learned about the museum, I think it's fantastic, or perhaps I'm a Mennonite in some other area of the world, and I just feel like I want to support this museum. Is there a way for me to go on the website being, you know, outside of the local area and find books or find the things that the museum has for sale and then contact the museum and purchase those? Simply contact the director by the uh, email or the phone number. Okay, thank you for that. In terms of services the museum has to offer, what does the museum offer for free and what do members or the general public need to pay for? Oh, that's a really good question. I was just, I was just over there uh, yesterday. The director talks about uh, computer genealogy searches. There is something out there called the Grandma Database with a Brothers Keeper software. And it's a Russian Mennonite uh, database that was started by people in California. And it would take in Russian Mennonites in the Great Plains and the Canada. And uh, this does not deal with what we call the old Mennonites and Amish, like out in Pennsylvania, Ohio. Those would be more Swiss type Mennonites. But this database is um, available online and also you can get uh, disks for it. And we have it uh, loaded onto the computer at the museum. And I, I, I jokingly say this many times, this really happens. Somebody says, 
oh, I'm here from Arizona for 15 minutes. Tell me all about my ancestors. <laughs> Go. <laughs> and it's it's hilarious, but they do that. And we say, okay, well, who's your grandpa's name? And they can look it up and print out a whole pedigree going all the way back and find a relation. It can, um, it can uh, calculate uh, this person and this person. Are you my fifth cousin or fourth cousin? And it's, uh, it's, it's really revolutionized the genealogy searches for Mennonites. Now, if you're not a Mennonite, this, sorry, doesn't, doesn't help you out very much on there. But that is a free service that if you walk in, that really answers a lot of questions for people who are searching for the roots. Thanks for that. I noticed on the website there's a, a tab or there's a, a link for genealogy help. And yeah. So you can and I would say, that. you know, uh, one thing that Fern would comment is she would appreciate a donation for the time. Oh, yeah. You know, there's, no, there's not a set fee, but, but a donation would be nice. Oh, yeah. For me, that goes without saying. If you're, you know, if you're getting help from any organization in genealogy, you want to help support them. And if you had, you know, ancestors that were Mennonite that lived in the area, and you find out that your family, you know, was in Gossel or is in Gossel, you want to join the museum and support them. What's the best way for people to connect with someone in the museum if they have questions? Oh, I would go straight to the telephone number. That um, if, you want to, if you want to get an answer and have a conversation, that's, that's probably the best way. Yeah, agreed. That phone number is 620-367-8200. Brian, is there any other information or any message you'd like the community or members to know about? Well, there's um, there's something interesting we we have here. If you're if you happen to be in this area, uh, we have a second Monday family history and genealogy group. That's an interesting story where it started up by just five people uh, meeting in the museum, and it's grown and grown and grown and grown to forty five people. <laughs> They share each other just what they're working on, as well as giving programs. Now, that has been on hiatus a little bit during COVID, and we're trying to get it uh, uh, fired up again. But it got to be a very, very interesting, very rapidly growing group. I just say people are very hungry for information, and they're very hungry to find out their roots. Mennonite, non-Mennonite, doesn't matter. And talk about how do you research? How do you look? You know, what are, what are uh, let's say, genealogy book numbering systems? What software is there? So those are some things that are related to this museum. So this is a local group that gets together? It's just a local group. How do people connect with that group if I'm from out of state and I'm listening to this podcast and I think, I might need some genealogy help going down the road. Do I contact the museum or do I contact I this group. I think it would be better to contact the museum. The lady who really started the group, uh, we don't have her phone number here to give out, but the Museum Fern would be one of the co-organizers um, of that group. And yeah, the, the uh, phone number would be uh, where you'd start. Okay. Thank you for that. Reflecting just a bit, how do you think your members, volunteers, and the community view you and the museum in terms of benefit and value? As far as the museum in terms of benefit and value, I guess I would say that it gives people a sense of security knowing that your heritage is being taken care of. Yep, that's very important for people. And as you mentioned, people are hungry to know where their ancestors came from, to know who am I, where did we come from? And you guys serve a, just a wonderful service there to bring that out and to help people understand that. 
Brian, I want to thank you for spending time with us today. I've learned so much, had a great time, and I'm really glad to meet you. It's really inspiring learning what the museum is doing, what its mission is, and all that you guys have available in your complex for people to see and for people to do. It's been a blast doing this, and it's been a real privilege. And with that, we'll end our time with our guest, Brian Stuckey. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap-up, which is coming up next. This is Ruth Armstrong from the Genealogical Society of Lynn County, Iowa, located in Cedar Rapids. And I listen to Sean Thomas Radcliffe and Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. Oh my gosh, what a wealth of knowledge and information the Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum in Gossel, Kansas has in Brian Stuckey. He's a great docent and a great guy. Brian was so kind to educate all of us about the Mennonite faith, what threshing actually is, as well as the history of the people of Gossel, Kansas. Really appreciated. The people of Gossel have so much heritage, history, and culture to be proud of. The most pressing priority of the Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum at this time is that they need volunteers to help with maintenance. If you can help, please connect with the museum. Don't you just love the history of the people of Gossel, Kansas? Their story and the way things worked out, enabling them to migrate from Russia to Kansas, was miraculous. They were impacted by Tsar Alexander I, who they named their church after, Tsarina Catherine the Great, who helped them settle in peace in Russia, and then Tsar Alexander II, who motivated these Mennonite people to be recruited by the Santa Fe Railroad Company, who helped them travel across the ocean, go across the United States and into Kansas in 1874, built for them a shelter known as the Immigrant House so they could get settled and then build their homes. What a wonderful heritage. We learned how the Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum began and all about the annual Threshing Days event. I hope anyone and everyone remotely close to Gossel, Kansas, attends the Country Threshing Days, which is held each year on the first full weekend in August. This year, Threshing Days will start on Friday, August 5th through Sunday, August 7th. Come and have fabulous food and fun with everyone else in Gossel, Kansas. The museum is supported 100% by donations, memberships, and volunteers. They have some really great activities in motion to help keep the museum current with technologies such as QR codes that we discussed and aligned with the community, such as the proposal for an event called A Night at the Museum. Please help support the Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum today. Brian reviewed the funding and fundraising particulars of the museum. Since you know what the funds are being used for and what the priorities are, you can lock in your decision to help support them by donating, volunteering, and joining the Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum in Gosso, Kansas, no matter where you are in the world. The contact information for the museum, of course, they're on Facebook at Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum. 
They're on the internet at gosselmuseum.com. That's G-O-E-S-S-E-L museum.com. You can send them email at gosselmuseum at gmail.com. You can call them at 620-367-8200. Their address is 200 Poplar Street, Gossel, Kansas, 67053. And if you go to the museum, admission is $5 for adults and $250 for kids up to age 13. All right, there were a thousand questions I could have asked during our time together, but I didn't in the interest of time. If questions occur to you and you'd like more information, please connect with the museum via the contact information provided in the program. If you're a listener in the area the museum serves, or if you're a listener researching ancestors in the community the museum serves, or if you're a person who just wants to support such a worthy cause as this, and you're not already a member, please consider joining, donating, and supporting the museum. One more time, the contact details for the museum. On Facebook, it's at Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum. On the internet, it's gosselmuseum.com. Email is gosselmuseum at gmail.com. Phone number is 620-367-8200. The address is 200 Poplar Street, Gossel, Kansas 67053. I hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable the museum is to the community and what kinds of excellent services they have to offer to their members and the public. The Mennonite Heritage and Agricultural Museum, located in Gossel, Kansas, is truly one of our nation's preservation oaks. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Scott Holmes, Cymbal Bird, Anthem of Rain, Track Tribe, and Cool Jazz Loops. Microstream Radio is a registered trademark. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by Microstream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of Microstream Radio. Thank you to everyone for listening. This is Sean Radcliffe. See you all on the next episode of Preservation Oaks. <laughs>